Well, have you ever been rejected? That's quite a harsh and blunt question to begin uh, your Sunday. I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, it's not nice, uh, is it? Uh, rejection. As a matter of fact, it can be rather painful. Maybe uh, you've been involved in a relationship that has come to an end because you've been rejected. Or maybe you've been turned away from many job interviews. Or sadly, when you were in school, or maybe even now as you're in school at the moment, there are children who, who are not at all kind to you. And they didn't welcome you in, into your class. It's painful, isn't it? Nobody wants to be on the end of rejection, do they? Okay, we can all uh, smile when the judges on a TV talent show say to a particular contestant, no, you really can't sing or no, you really can't dance. But when we have known rejection in our own lives, we know the pain of it and we wouldn't want to ever experience it again. Well, this morning we're turning to Luke 20 verses 9 to 19, where we find the parable of uh, the tenants. And in it, we come up against this theme of a rejection. This is a parable that you can also find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21 and Mark 12. But for this morning, we're going to park ourselves in Luke's Gospel. And it is a parable that is a warning to the nation of Israel and its leaders who led it astray. And we can say this because not long before Jesus told this parable, we see him weep over Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 19, he spoke of judgment coming on them because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. And then immediately before the parable in chapter 20, we read of Jesus being questioned by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They question his authority. They really do reject who Jesus has been saying he is. And they try to catch Jesus out. But in seeking to trap Jesus, they themselves end up being trapped by a question that he asks. And with this group still the audience, Jesus now goes on to, to apply things further, to tell the parable of the tenants. And that's what we have in verses 9 to the first half of verse 16. And then for the rest of our passage, we'll see the way that Jesus applies this parable to them. And so firstly, then let's take a look at this life changing story in verses 9 to 16. And what we find is a parable of a rejection, a parable of rejection. This parable is all about a man who planted a vineyard and he rented it out to some farmers before going <laughs> away for a long time. This was something that was a common thing to do at this point in history. Land would often be let out by landlords who would be absent and they'd give it to the farmers who would care for the plants. They would make sure that there would be fruit and they would be in line then for a cut of any produce that was there when harvest time come, comes around. Now, generally, when we come to parables, we have to be careful to not overread too much meaning into them, as they are, after all, illustrations and their stories to help us to understand a point that Jesus is making. They're not necessarily factual events, but nonetheless, in this parable, it's widely agreed that many of the features and the aspects in this story have, have got historical connections. The parable itself is built off the, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5, which speaks of the vineyard as the nation of Israel and God as its owner. But then here now in, in Luke 20, that's not quite the same way that Jesus uses it. Now we have a shift where Israel are pictured as the farmers and the vineyard is the place of God's promise, God's blessing. 
And the owner of the vineyard went away for a long time. And that sets the stage uh, for us for, for the overview of the nation of Israel's long history that Jesus is about to give us. And so as we enter verse 10, we're now aware that this parable refers to the, to the period from Israel's beginning to the present day of Jesus's ministry. And we'll see how Israel treated the owner of the vineyard, God himself, as we see how the tenants respond to the servants who were sent on behalf of the vineyard owner. Did you notice from verses 10 to 12, a series of servants who come to the estate to see what the harvest will be and how much produce there is? In verse 10, we see the first servant is sent by the owner of the vineyard and the servant, no doubt, would have expected to, to leave with fruit. But instead, he is rejected. He is beaten and sent away empty handed. The tenants give nothing back uh, to the owner. They, they lack in, in fruit for God. They reject uh, the prophet who comes, the wave of prophets sent to them by God at various points in the history of Israel. And in verse 11, the second prophet, the second servant, fares no better. Again, he's sent by the master, but the response, it is even worse than before. He isn't only beaten as the first was, but he is also treated shamefully. And then he is sent away empty-handed. The opposition of these tenants, it is intensifying. It is getting greater. And despite this, a third servant is sent in verse 12. But again, he is similarly treated to the last and is harmed. We read there in verse 12 that they wounded him and then cast him out. It all just communicates the point to us very clearly that none of the servants fared well at the hands of the tenants. And actually, every time each servant is treated worse than the one before. And so it's clear that Israel's treatment of the prophets is not a pretty picture. They have rejected them. They have refused to engage with and to listen to them, though they have come from God himself. And so in rejecting these servants, these prophets, they have rejected the one who sent them. But there still remains one last option for this landowner who has shown such great patience so far. In verse 13, with much reflection and some uncertainty, he asks, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, here's just a little reminder that we can't read too much into the picture because with God, there's no uncertainty. There's no hesitation about what he would do in the great rescue plan set out before the creation of the world. There's no uncertainty with God. But here we have the question asked by the landowner because he has a dilemma. He thinks that maybe he hasn't sent someone with enough clout or enough authority or high enough rank. And so he decides to send his beloved son, my son whom I love, which is a phrase that might ring a bell for you, as it is that same phrase which was used by God the Father of God the Son at Jesus's baptism in Luke chapter three, and again at the transfiguration in Luke chapter nine. And so the point is that no one else can be sent. No one else can be sent who is more important without the man going himself. And he hopes that they will respect the son and that the outcome might be different to what we've seen so far of the rejection of the servants. 
And just keep in mind that Jesus is telling this parable with the parallels to what is happening in Israel. And, and this verse is picturing God's patience and his tenacity as the sending of the son represents the sending of Jesus, the very one who is telling this parable to them. But look in verse 14 at how the tenants react. They reject the son. Their plan is officially to murder. And then that way they reason they shall inherit the vineyard. Look at how they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And that emphasis on the inheritance being ours just shows us they agreed and in their thinking, they obviously hoped that the landowner was dead, maybe. And if the son was killed, then the land would default to them. They wanted the inheritance to be theirs. It seems pretty absurd, but it just goes to show the foolishness of their rejection. Bluntly, it shows how ill thought out they were in rejecting the son of the landowner. And the truth of this murderous attitude wouldn't have been noticed by many in the audience to be speaking of them. But in the days ahead, it would become so clear as this parable pictures the total rejection of the son, of the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who stood there right in front of them. And that's exactly what the tenants in this parable do. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And this is an allusion to exactly what the religious leaders listening intend for Jesus. And so the point is being made quite forcibly that the way the nation of Israel was acting towards Jesus was as outrageous as the tenants behaved towards the son in this parable. And so Jesus asks a rhetorical question to end the story in verse 15. What will the owner do? What will the owner do? How will he handle these tenants who have beaten and ill-treated his servants, but have also gone on to kill his own son? What will the owner do? It's clear, isn't it, that such actions demand a response. There must be justice. Things can't be left as they are. This rejection, this awful action cannot be overlooked. It cannot be commended. No, it must be punished. The tenants are in deep trouble because since the crime was so serious, so too now must the punishment be as well. And it's at this point that we get to the heart of the parable. If we stopped and now, then we would not receive the message of this parable. And so in verse 16, Jesus makes the point, and it is this, the tenants will be destroyed. The tenants will be destroyed. Their opportunity to gain the vineyard is gone, and it is instead given to others. And historically, this points to judgment coming on the nation of Israel, especially the leadership, those listening to this parable being told judgment is going to come on them. The vineyard will be given to others. The blessings and the promises of God will be made known to what the Bible calls Gentiles, all people who aren't Jewish. They will now be included and be blessed in a way that up to now wasn't experienced by many outside of Israel. But now it will be. And that is quite a bombshell for Jesus to drop. He makes the point of his parable with force as he calls out the Jewish leadership for their rejection of him. And so how are they going to react? I wonder how would you react if you were in their position? 
Well, we see exactly uh, their response and the application of this parable in the second half of verse 16 to verse 19. And what Jesus applies from the parable is this, that God doesn't take rejection lightly. And that's our second point this morning. God doesn't take rejection lightly. The crowd respond in an equally strong manner. They understand exactly what Jesus is saying, and they don't like it. When they hear it, they exclaim, surely not, or even God forbid, in another translation. They react with strong denial as they realize the point being made through the actions of the tenants and the owner's reaction to them. For Jesus' listeners, it was unthinkable that the privileges of Jews as God's chosen people could under any circumstances be given to all those who are not Jews. But in response, Jesus looks directly at them and quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Found in the Old Testament, he asks them, what is the meaning of what is written there? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this psalm is actually quoted in Luke 19 as well, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. In Luke 19, verse 38, we read, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That makes explicit reference to the king and shows the psalm is messianic. That is, it speaks of the coming Messiah, the coming of God's promised one, the coming of Jesus himself. And now here in Luke 20, verse 17, we read of the rejected yet exalted stone. As Luke's words here, they match what we read in Psalm 118. And there in the Old Testament, in the psalm, this verse describes a rejected nation and a rejected king before all the other nations. But it assures uh, that rejected king and rejected nation that they do have an exalted position before God. But now here Jesus uses it more specifically to communicate that he himself, Jesus, the beloved son of God, is rejected by the nation, but is accepted by God as having the place of honor. Jesus uses this psalm to emphasize their unfaithfulness and opposition to God's promised one. And specifically, Jesus makes use of the image of a capstone or a cornerstone, as we have it here. Now, I can assure you that I am no builder. Uh, maybe you're someone who does know how to lay bricks and to plaster a wall. There's certainly friends in the church here that I would have to call on if I wanted uh, to do that. I know that you have uh, friends in the church who can do that uh, as well. But my DIY skills are incredibly limited. But I can tell you that a capstone or a cornerstone is a very, very important stone. A capstone would be uh, the stone that either went at uh, the top of a doorway uh, to hold its shape, or it would go on, on the top of, of the wall in, in the corner, binding the whole thing together and sealing the work. Or on the other hand, a cornerstone would be the stone that was laid at the corner of a house in the foundations, and it would bear the weight of the two walls that met at the corner. And without this solid foundation, without this cornerstone, the house would not stand. Either way, whether your Bible version has the word capstone or cornerstone, it is a very, very important stone. It is a stone of great importance. And so what is Jesus saying? Well, it's this. Though men might reject him, 
Jesus is accepted by God, whose acceptance is what counts. Jesus applies this psalm to show that the nation of Israel is now, in rejecting him, standing against God instead of being on his side. The parable has shown the rejection of God's messengers was common, but God will yet exalt and honour his beloved son, whom he has sent. And you see, if a builder decided not to use such an important stone as a cornerstone and they rejected it, well, then that would be a huge mistake because it's not going to end well for that house that they're building because it's not going to stand very long without a cornerstone. And so, too, it is the same mistake made here by the Jews in rejecting Jesus. And though they make this decision, God's purposes, they will yet be fulfilled. But similarly, it will not end well for them. It doesn't end well for those who reject the Lord Jesus. And we know that from what Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so Jesus now changes the image just a little bit. The focus is not on the stone itself, but on the power of the stone now to destroy. This picture tells us whether a person falls on a stone or has a stone fall on them, the end result is the same. It is destruction. And so as one writer says, people may reject and oppose Jesus, but it is they, not he, who will suffer. In the ultimate sense, that is true, isn't it? Regardless of how the stone meets the rejecter, it doesn't end well. The fate is not good. And this picture really reflects the authority to judge that God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will one day enact when he comes again. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. He will return to judge the living and the dead. And if a person has rejected the cornerstone, if they have rejected Jesus, then that will mean final destruction for them one day. And those listening understood that this is exactly what he meant. Because in verse 19, we read there that they immediately look for a way to arrest him because they know that Jesus had spoken against them. Now, maybe you think this morning that that's a little bit uh, harsh. You might think I'm overstating this. Well, if so, then if you've got a Bible in front of you, then it'll be helpful for you to turn over just a few pages to Acts chapter four. That's the the second installment that Luke wrote. And that tracks the beginnings of the early church in the days of the apostles. And there in Acts chapter four, we helpfully have this same reference to this same verse quoted again from Psalm 118 verse 22, speaking of the cornerstone. And now we get the disciples' understanding of what this verse meant. The first followers of Jesus give us this insight onto what this verse means. There in Acts 4, Peter and John, they're before the Sanhedrin, the religious court of the day. And they're there because they've healed a man. And this is the reasoning that Peter gives in response to the question that the religious leaders are asking about the power by which they did this healing. And Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and following, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter clearly says that Jesus is the stone the builders rejected. Jesus is the cornerstone which has been discarded by the builders. In our parable, Jesus compares the religious leaders' treatment of him with how Israel had in the past treated their prophets. They had been rejected, and so too was he rejected. And he anticipates their rejection of him in that they're going to slay him, they're going to kill him, they're going to put him on a cross. And we know now, don't we, that that is exactly what happened. That's what Peter says, quoting this verse in Acts chapter 4, that Jesus was rejected by them. He was crucified by them. God the Father sent God the Son, his only begotten Son, the best that he had to make a wretch his treasure. And yet Jesus was rejected. He was killed. But that did not stop God's plan. Because, you know, the, the rejected cornerstone will be exalted. And indeed, Peter went on to say there in Acts 4 that they crucified him, yes, but God raised him from the dead. And by that power, Peter and John had healed a crippled beggar, the one who was despised and rejected, the one who was killed, the one who was crucified on a cross, was and is alive forevermore and so the question that i want to ask you this morning is this are you rejecting jesus are you rejecting him do you have a relationship with the lord jesus christ this morning or have you rejected him and are you instead falling over the stone and being crushed by it friends i trust that we see the serious consequences clearly this morning and don't make the same mistake of rejecting Jesus that those Jews there listening uh, to Jesus did. God does not take rejection lightly. He does not take the rejection of his son, his beloved son, lightly. And here we see that if we reject God, then he will reject us. And as painful as we find human rejection, the rejection of God will be unlike anything else you could ever experience. If you freely decide to turn your back on God, well, then that is your decision. But then you will have to live forever in the light of that decision. Friends, I realize this is not a light subject. It is serious, but it is vital. It is so, so important. If we are to know the eternal acceptance of God instead of eternal rejection. Here in this parable, Jesus shows that the nation of Israel was widely rejecting him. Their response to God's promised one was not at all adequate. And the consequences, I trust, are plain to see. But friends, all of us once rejected Jesus. And by the grace of God alone, by his undeserved kindness, there are those of us here this morning, maybe you're watching in uh, online as well, who are now on his side. As we sometimes sing that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We'll sing those words in a few moments time. And, and that is the wonderful testimony 
of all those who have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. What a joy that is to be able to say that you know that it is finished if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though it was your sin that held him there, your sins are now forgiven as you trust alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful testimony you have. And yet, sadly, there are those of you even now who've tuned in this morning and you are rejecting the Son, the cornerstone. You're rejecting the wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith is not in him and you want nothing to do with him. And friend, if that is you, then please hear these words of application from Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation really is found in no one else. Friends, hear these wonderful words of hope and promise that though you have up to now rejected King Jesus, you can know rescue this morning from your state of disconnection and your alienation from God. Though you are far off from him, your sin and your wrongdoing that has left you far from him can be dealt with. Salvation can be found not in any old place, but in one place. There is only one name by which we must be saved, and that is the beautiful name of Jesus. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. There is only hope for you this morning in one place alone, and that is in relationship with Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? Is your faith in him? Yes, you might have kept Jesus at arm's length up to now. You might have rejected him completely, like a builder rejecting the most important stone in the building. But you don't have to carry on that way. That's because this parable says that God's promises and blessing are not limited to a few. It's not restricted to certain ethnicities or certain religious backgrounds or those of a more moral heritage, whatever that might mean. It doesn't matter where you were born or where you come from. No, here Jesus has made it quite clear that the vineyard will be given to others. There is no limit now on the reach of the promise of the good news found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we sit in our homes listening to this this morning, even you can know God's salvation if you will put your faith in Jesus. If you will depend on no one else, if you will come to him, ask him for forgiveness for all the wrongs that you've committed against him, turning from living for yourself now and instead living for God and believing in the Lord Jesus that he really did die and rise again for you. And if you will do that, then you will become a part of the great line down through history that is a member of the family of God that will inherit all the blessings of God that are available to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us maybe who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, may this encourage us to never give up on those who are at this moment rejecting of the Lord. May we be spurred on to pray for them, that they would experience the mercy of God and know his acceptance and not his rejection. May we be spurred on to pray for them, but may we also be spurred on to, to actually tell others, those that the Lord has put around us, 
in our in our families, in our friendship groups, in our workplaces, in school, in our communities. May God give us the, the boldness when we be spurred on to tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be encouraged to do that. But finally, let us ultimately, and we close with this, let us ultimately thank God that we will never experience eternal rejection. Instead, may we be full of praise and thanks and live a life that pleases him, that Christ has taken the rejection that our sin deserved. And in light of that, live a life that pleases him. And that might mean that there'll be times in, in your workplace or as you go into school this week, or even within your own family, that you might know something of rejection by those around you for your faith in the Lord Jesus. You might find things difficult because you live for Jesus. And in, instead of refusing him, you now refuse to live like you used to live. You don't make the same decisions that you used to because Jesus is better. And you know that Jesus is greater and he is worth it. And brothers and sisters, as hard as that might be at times, praise him. Praise our Saviour that he took our eternal rejection on himself, on the cross of Calvary, that we now need never experience separation from God anymore, but can always draw near to God. We can come to him in prayer. We can call God our Father and we can be safe and we can be secure in his everlasting arms. As hard as human rejection can be, it's ultimately God's view that matters. And may we all be helped today and as we go into this new week to have our faith realigned and firmly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved.